Hey, you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. I'm Gary Craig, and this is your effing podcast. On the show today, our special guest is, well, me. See, on Friday, June 28th, I'll be hosting my last show for TICFM. And for the first time ever, I don't know why, I, I've agreed to be interviewed. Maybe I figure it's free therapy. I wanted to pay for it. And here to grill me is a great guy, a radio pro, great guy. He's one of us. And he does the play-by-play -play for the Hartford Yard Goats, who's biting at the bit. I could just see him. He's, he's biting at the bit. He can't wait to ask me all these questions. Dan Lavallo, welcome to your effing podcast. I'm honored to be on your effing podcast. <laughs> it, it, I, it, it's worth it just to hear you say that. I mean, uh, the part where you said great guy, I like that too, but I don't know how you're going to feel after we do this interview. Well, that's all right. Anyway, you uh, announced in January that you were going to bring an end to the show. I don't want to use the word retire. How did you reach that decision? You know, it's funny. I, I've been thinking about it for uh, quite a long time. And I just, I don't know, something, I, I walked into the studio that morning. And as I'm walking in, I just felt, you know, something, it just felt like the right time to announce it. And I took management by surprise. Steve Salhaney wasn't too thrilled with me. Hey, you didn't give me any heads up. <laughs> Why didn't you talk to me about it? And I, you know, I told him, I said, look, I just, you know, when you feel like it's the time, it's the time. Well, you know, I, when I read the story, I said, wait a minute. He actually made the decision as he was walking into the studio? I mean, there was no thought process? Did you sit down? Did you talk it over with your wife? Did you talk it over with your family? Uh, my family basically has a hands-off approach to my career. They basically, you know, have left it in my lap and basically have said, you know, whenever you... You know, when you feel it's right, you know, you got to do what you feel is right. And whenever you feel it's time, that, that's, your, that's your decision. What's the reaction been from your family since you made the announcement? Uh, nothing. I mean, you know, they go on with their lives. I mean, my kids have their lives. I just announced and, uh, and told them afterwards, and they said, is you sure? Are you sure that's what you want to do? <laughs> since you made the announcement... What has been the question you have been asked the most by people? Are you really retiring? But you're not retiring. Well, I'm not really retiring. I can't retire. I'm, I'm just basically stepping away from, from this morning show because I've, I feel like I've done everything I can do. There's nothing more I could do with it. I've done everything. Could I continue going I could, I could continue on. I mean, I can go for years. And, well, but you know, Gary, when, when you think about it, there are a lot of people who are in this business who want to die behind the microphone, and it's not as if you've lost anything off of your fastball. I mean, you're still tops in the ratings. you still got that 95-mile-per-hour fastball, so you're walking away on top. Is that something you wanted to do? The way he ties in baseball yes, and everything. everything no matter what question it is, he ties it into baseball. <laughs> Yeah, he goes over to the supermarket. He walks up to the meat counter. Hi, I'd like a steak. I'd really like to knock it out of the park tonight. What do you have? 
Everything is baseball. I, I did that the other day. Remember, you came in the booth and we're talking and uh, about something totally unrelated to baseball, and I used a baseball analogy. And <laughs> <laughs> like you said, everything relates to baseball with you. But that's all right. But you haven't lost anything off your fastball, so uh, why walk away now? I don't know. I, I you, you know something. I really don't have an answer for that. And I and part of me is feeling that I'm making a mistake. And the other part is saying, look, if not now, when? You can't keep doing it forever. I mean, there's going to come a time when you're going to have to say enough is enough. Part of my trepidation is I'm walking into a, a, a dark tunnel and I don't have a plan. I'm not going to anything, going to another project. I guess I need a new challenge. I, I've always been challenged. I mean, my, the favorite thing, when I first came here, they said, do whatever you want, just get us ratings. And to me, that was the that was the greatest. You know, you're a radio guy. Right. You know, that's that's just great. But I mean, they gave you carte blanche when you came here, right? Yeah, they said do whatever you want. Just get the morning show to number one. I took that as a challenge. So guaranteed on July first, which is the Monday after you're done on this radio show, you're going to wake up at three thirty in the morning. No, I won't. I won't wake up at three thirty. You won't. No way. Good for you. It'll probably be uh, 7.30. All right. So anyhow, you wake up on July 1st. Have you thought about I mean, you mentioned you really don't have any plans, but have you thought about what, what, what you're going to do, let's say, on July 1st even? No. I hope I don't wake up and say, oh, God, what the hell did I do? Well, how about the station? What's the reaction been from management since you made this announcement? Uh, well, they weren't happy with me not letting them know what I was going to do. But my argument is... Okay, so I let you know what I was going to do. How is that going to change your position on what you have to do? You have to find somebody to replace me. Whether I told you that I was announcing or I didn't tell you that I was announcing, the outcome is going to be the same thing. Talk about your artwork, because we look down the road. What will Gary do? What might Gary do? I mean, I've seen your artwork, and I've also seen it uh, presented on television when uh, Scott Haney interviewed you, and uh, you, you do some great work. It's a hobby, though, Dan. It's a hobby. Again, it's like this podcast, right? We're doing this podcast. Right. There's 700,000 podcasts. Um, and that's not a number I'm just throwing out. There's actually three quarters of a million podcasts available for people to listen. By the way, you know what the podcast people tell me? They'll tell me there's like five billion websites, so you're better off having a podcast because the percentages are better with you instead of if you just had a website. But go ahead. But, I mean, how do you stand out? How does, how does one podcast stand out? What, what the hell do we do so that people can find your effing podcast? Well, I like the effing part. <laughs> I don't think you can make a living at it, but that's Can't make just a living. Me. It's not, I'm not good. I, I doubt that I'll make a dime, but at least it gives me something to do, like an outlet to be creative, be funny. Maybe I'll do some new crank calls. But to answer your question about the artwork, it's the same thing with, with artists. There are a million artists out there. Everyone's as good as you think you are. There's someone way better than you. But not everybody can pick up a brush, and you do what, oil on canvas? Yeah. Not everybody can pick up a brush and just start painting. Talk about how you, you have some kind of talent in that area. You have talent in a lot of areas, but talk about how you started painting. Something about a kit that was, did your <laughs> wife finally said, get it out of here, it's collecting dust. Yeah, yeah, I bought a, I bought a Bob Ross oil painting kit. Yeah, happy little trees, look at that. Look at that. Is your world happy? Just stab a little tree there. Happy little trees. And it was underneath our TV in the 
bedroom. It was there for 10 years. And she finally said, Gary, are you going to use this kit? Either use it or throw it out. I'm sick of looking at it. So I picked it up. And I just started. I, I haven't been trained. I've had no training whatsoever. I do watch a lot of videos. I watch other artists, and maybe I pick up a technique. Maybe I'll watch another artist and oh, that's how you make that. Oh, that's cool. All right, let me try to do that. You know, a lot of people have painted great people who just picked up a brush and a lot like you took it up and had the talent. Churchill, Eisenhower. Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett, right. A Sinatra. Uh, a lot of people uh, have painted uh, and, and, and have this creativity. Do you think it's just a, a creative gene, and in your case, it's another outlet to use that creativity? Uh, I'm not delusional about it. I'm not going to be the world-class uh, artist selling his work. What about acting? I'm, I'm going to read some of your credits here, and people might not know this. You were in Curb Your Enthusiasm, Boardwalk Empire, right. 30 Walk, As the World Turns, Baywatch, one life to live. What about uh, acting? Will you pursue that more? Another hobby. Uh, you wrote in your book, by the way, Tugging on the Sleeve of Fame, and uh, some of the most fascinating parts of the book are when you write about being in some of these episodes. Uh, it, it's fun, but it's also work, isn't it? Oh, it's work. When I, when I got the part for American Hustle and... I had a torn meniscus in my left knee. When they called me and they said, you've got it, you've got to block out these four days, there was no way I could tell them, well, I, I can't do it, I've got a knee problem, I've got a torn meniscus, you know, so basically I was on the set for four days popping Advils like Tic Tacs. Just, just to see if I could cut the pain in order. To, and, you know, you're standing, you're standing on your feet for 12 hours a day. You've got to be on the set. You've got to be ready. You can't bellyache. You can't complain. You've got to be there and do the work until the director releases you and says, okay, it's a wrap for today. However, you managed to squeeze all of this in while working full-time here at TICFM. How did you do it? Well, you know, I would go in to New York for an audition. I call it 212, two hours in, one minute audition, back in the car, two hours back. And I would go in on auditions and, you know, you would go in, you'd see all the New York guys, you know, all the New York actors, all the character actors. And you're up against guys in Manhattan that go out on calls every day. They're going on auditions every day. So, you know, what are my chances? But every once in a while, I would, for whatever reason, would nail something. Tell the story, because you play a pilot in one movie that was filmed in our backyard, Bradley International Airport, involved De Niro. But tell the story about how you and a fellow actor are walking through the airport. Yeah, Everybody's Fine is the name of that film. And um, De Niro was in it. De Niro, by the way, De Niro, it's funny to watch him because, uh, he, first of all, he kept to himself. And... He was off in a corner on a chair and basically mumbling to himself. He seems insecure. He's going over his lines in his head. I mean, you're De Niro. I mean, you don't have to do anything but show up. And then you're watching him shoot the scene, and you're thinking, this is, he's not doing anything. He's not even acting. What is this? But then you see the footage, you see the film, and you see his brilliance on camera, you see, oh, that's what he's doing. He's not acting, he's just being real. 
I guess I was, you call it a featured extra where you get, you get uh, screen time. And I played a, a pilot. And I was, I was heavy in that film. I was a fat little pilot. <laughs> and me and this other guy, we're extras, and we both play pilots. And it was, I think it was the Southwest Terminal that at the time was closed down to Bradley. I had my uh, pilot's uniform on and we're shooting. And finally, they, we broke for lunch. And the director or the assistant director said, now look, guys, you can stay in this part of the terminal. Just stay here. Don't walk into the other part of the terminal because that's active airport. You can't just walk in. And we nodded, okay, whatever. So we sat around for a little bit, and I said to the other guy, let's have some fun. So we started walking into the other terminal. And as we're walking into the terminal, the flight attendants are nodding at me, and I'm tipping my hat <laughs> like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in uh, uh, Catch Me If You Can. Right. Uh, same deal. Yep. So then now, now, we're walk now we're in the terminal. We're actually in the terminal as two pilots, and the uniforms were authentic. I turned to the other guy and I said, watch this. I start walking towards one of the gates, and I start weaving back and forth as if I was completely plastered. <laughs> and I'm walking, and I'm weaving, and I probably... If I said, said anything, it probably was hi. <laughs> anyway, I get finished and I and I turn around and he's laughing so hard that there's no sound coming out of his mouth. And I walk back and I said, "What was the reaction?" He said, "People, their jaws were on the floor. <laughs> they were horrified <laughs> that you were walking towards the gate and you were obviously drunk." <laughs> Did you get any heat from the the people on the other side? Of no, COVID? no, because we hustled back to no, the okay. set, back to the other side, and I don't think anyone knew that I did that. But, but you know, that's you. If somebody tells you, as you wrote in your book, it can't be done or don't do it, that's an open invitation to do it for you, isn't it? It's always been that way. You can't do it. Like uh, when I created We Are the Children, right. that was eight days before Christmas in 1985, and I said on the air, I'd, I'd love to have a party for kids. I've got eight days to put it together. Wow, you can't do it in eight days. And then, you know, everyone rallied around it, and eight days later we had a great party for kids. What's going to happen with We Are the Children? I think it's going to continue. I think the radio station is going to do it. Mm -hmm. Because, you, you know what, it's really not about me. It's not, it's not my party. I mean, sure, I created it, but I, I gave it as a gift to the, to the kids, and I gave it as a gift to the volunteers, who it means it means an awful lot to the volunteers. We have some volunteers that have been doing it for 20 years. And you created it because you were going through a difficult time in your life at the time, right? Yeah, I was going through a divorce. I was feeling sorry for myself because I couldn't see my daughter on Christmas Day. And then I started thinking about, well, what about... There must be kids who have no place to go on Christmas Day. At least my daughter, you know, had a good Christmas. That was the inspiration to start it. And then uh, eight days before Christmas, 85, we had the party at the Holiday Inn in downtown Hartford. Had like a hundred and, I don't know, 140 kids. We had a band. We had Santa. We had the toys. And that grew into basically the biggest party in America on Christmas Day for children. There's a touching moment 
about someone who went to the party who years later, I guess, returns as a volunteer. Oh, yeah. Talk about that. that that's a full circle moment when I walked up. And I always thank the volunteers because they're giving up their Christmas to be at the party. And I, I walked up to this one volunteer and I said, uh, I said, I just wanted to thank you for being here today. And he said, no, thank you. I said, well, I, I don't do anything. You know, I'm just the mouthpiece. You know, without you guys, there wouldn't be a party. He says, no, no, you don't understand. I was a child at your original party. And I had to wait until I was 18 to be a volunteer. And I told myself that when I become of age, I'm going to come back here and give back because I remember as a child what the party meant to me. Since then, we've had several people, numerous people who, who have attended as children over the years who come back and, and become volunteers. You started at TIC in 1981, and there are some who might think, well, my goodness, he's been at TIC now for 38 years, 39 years, all yeah. this time. But it was interrupted. In fact, you were called into a meeting at TIC thinking you might be talking contract, and they showed you the door, didn't they? Right. We're not renewing your contract. Not only are we not renewing your contract, we don't want you. And by the way, nobody else could have you either. And you took him to court. I did. I challenged it. In the business, it's called a non-compete clause. And you know, the non-compete clause, I don't know, they adapted it for broadcast, which is just stupid. Because originally, you know where the non-compete clauses came from? In the scientific community. Right. Because if you had a researcher, a scientist at one company, and he left, they didn't want that guy to bring all the secrets over to the new company. And it was a period of time. You can't work for another company within 75 miles of here for a year. You can't bring any secrets, any proprietary secrets or information from our company to the next company. So I don't know. Some idiot adapted it for broadcast. What secrets do I know? I don't know any secrets. I'm just a guy. I'm a guy well, on the radio. Well, as you wrote in the book, they show you the door, but we don't want you but you can't go anyplace else. Right. I thought that was unfair. I mean, it's different if you're under contract and you quit and try to go across the street to another radio station. I could see where there'd be a problem with that. But I had to feed my family. I had to make a living somehow. So took TIC to court. And it was a long process. I mean, we blew about $40,000 challenging it. And I remember that we had that in savings and, and we just... We just used it. You wiped out your savings. We basically did. And we won the case. In fact, covenant not to compete clauses are illegal in Connecticut because of because of the outcome. And there's every broadcaster in this state who owes a debt of gratitude to you. And I'm, I'm saying that because I've been through similar situations, and we all know broadcasters who have. And by you challenging it, you came to the rescue of a lot of people, Gary. Yeah, so all of you, if you could just send me 10 yeah. bucks. <laughs> to make up that $40,000 you lost. Yeah. So then you go to where? Kiss? I had a job offer from every station in the market, every single station to do mornings. And I, I selected KISS because uh, they had the best financial package. And that's where Crank Calls came about. This is a great story. You've got to relate it to uh, those uh, listening on the podcast. I left TIC, and I went over to KISS, and J. Bo Jones was the program director there. And he knew who was coming over to TIC to replace me. It was a, a, a team by the name of Kelly and Klein. 
And he comes in one morning and he calls me into his office and says, hey, buddy, buddy, listen to this. This is Kelly and Klein are going to come to TIC. I said, yeah, so? Listen, they've got this, they got this benchmark that they've used for years. They do this thing called a crank call. I said, okay. He says, you got to do it, buddy. You got to do it. You got to start it before they come here. I said, oh, no, I don't know. Oh, oh you got to do it. Got to do it. Take the wind out of their sails. <laughs> Burying them before they even get to the market. So I thought about it, and you know, and I thought, all right. I basically started that at Kiss, and yeah, they didn't do phony phones when they got here because it would look like maybe they were copying me. You took the air out of their sails even before they opened a microphone. Yeah, I, I kind of did. You know, radio people are assholes like that. They do stuff like that all the time. They but figure, you know what, Gary? They didn't do it in this market. No. And, uh, you, you came in and you changed the market. You gave the market more edge. I mean, isn't radio or? Didn't radio used to be edgy, but it wasn't that way in this market? Well, it wasn't that way in this market. Howard was here in the market early on in his career, but he hadn't found his sweet spot yet. Yeah, but, and we'll get to that. But let's face it, this market was Bob Steele. <coughs> 19 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock in the morning. <coughs> but, his, but his ratings were phenomenal. His share was unbelievable. Yeah, when I came to the market, he had a 58 share. 58% of all the people listening to radio on any given morning are listening to Bob Steele. I said, oh, all right, I'll listen to him. I tuned in the next morning. I couldn't believe it. I mean, he was breaking every radio rule in the book, uh, droning on and on, corny and... Uh, <clears throat> Let's check the temperatures around the world. Lithuania. <laughs> 35 degrees. <laughs> and I thought, that's my competition. All right, well, I'm just going to do my thing. They told me, do anything you want. Just just get us some ratings. So I started doing my thing. What was different the second time around here at TIC? Or was anything different? Well, uh, I had to reinvent myself because the first time around... It was very character-driven. I had all these different characters that I did. It was in-your-face, always trying to be funny, always trying to do a bit. And I'm sure with all the crap that came out of my mouth, there was good and there was also very bad. So when I came back, I realized, all right, you got to reinvent it. You also need, you also need a, a sidekick to play off of. So that's where Christine came in. Right. We re-engineered the morning show. It was... It was more down to earth it was more real it was more observational humor it was me going off on rants it was me being ultra honest if something happened in my life that was screwed up i brought it to the morning show so every day it was something else and i did characters but we did we did it differently you know i i put my characters in vignettes in parodies and in, in parody songs and that type of thing and uh, the ratings by the way reflected that the public accepted the change but uh, what did people tell you the, the second time around gary why have you changed or gary i'm glad you changed what was the reaction do you remember no they never had a reaction i mean you know you know as well as i do radio is one way we rarely know what the reaction is you know, unless somebody calls you on the phone and says, hey, that bit sucked, or hey, you sound great, and but that doesn't happen. You have to basically ask them for calls. Social media is changing that, though, isn't it? Oh, my God, social media. What do you make of it? Royal pain in the ass, because you got to be doing it all the time. And the thing is, 
in this business, you, you have to know it. You have to know it. You have to use it. You have to do it. And management insists that you do it. Yeah, now they do, but when it, originally they didn't know what the hell it was. That's they, right. They didn't realize what it was. What, what's a twit? What, Twitter? Mm-hmm. What is that? Facebook? Now I'm on everything. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, podcasting. You can't just do one tweet and then six months later do another tweet. That's right. Howard Stern, we started talking about Howard before, and uh, he was in this market before you got here, right? CCC, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, he was he 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 preceded me. But when he was when he was in the market, he hadn't found his spot yet. He didn't he didn't know. And you know, if those of you who read his books and and saw his movie Private Parts, it just he realized it. He just realized he got to throw all the funny DJ stuff out the window and just be real. <laughs> and when he started being real, aha! Light bulb went off in his head. Oh, this is what you're supposed to do. And that's kind of what I did when I came back the second time. You've had a, a tremendous career, and uh, you you wanted to be in show business or perform or act or do comedy when what you were still in high school, right? Yeah, I had I had an uncle. Uh, his name was High Anzel, who was a, an actor, great character actor. My original thing was to be on stage. I wanted to be on stage, but you know what? The rejection factor is so difficult. You go to these auditions, man, and they just rip your heart out. I mean, you have to have a cast iron stomach. And in retrospect, I should have just sucked it up and said, okay, I screwed up that audition. The next one will be better. So I kind of saw radio as a like a roundabout way of doing some acting. Because, you know, you are acting. You're doing characters. You're writing material. You're performing. You're just not performing on a stage. The radio is your stage. I mean, you actually attended the Academy of Dramatic Arts. That's how serious you were about this. American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which you have to audition to get in. You have to read. And I, I read and got in. And uh, I think I did a semester there. I, I, I wasn't there a long time. Why'd you leave? You know what? I don't know. Maybe I didn't think I was getting anything out of it. Or maybe I, I saw it was going to be a long long road to go through that. I was impatient. I wanted to get on with my life. I wanted to do, you know, something else. I don't know. So fast forward, now you're down in Miami trying to get into radio, and the next thing you know, you're producing for Larry King, the Larry King. What was that like? (laughs) Larry King, hello. (laughs) Larry's, wow, what a character he was. Larry asked me if you want to intern. I said yes. So I was kind of like doing some producing duties for him. I was answering the phones. He had a late night talk show from midnight till five in the morning at WIOD in Miami. And this was before he was national, obviously. Oh, before he was national. So he was at WIOD in Miami, midnight to five. Then, then the Mutual Broadcasting Network picked him up. Remember that? Yep. That turned into CNN. And I would answer phones for him. He was, he lived life large. I mean, he, he had all kinds of women. Oh, my God. Every night it was a different girlfriend calling me. Is he in a good mood? What is he thinking? You were the clearinghouse. How the hell do I know what he's thinking? <laughs> You're screwing him. Why don't you ask him? <laughs> 
Did you stay in touch with him after you left? From time to time. We've had him on the show a few times. Oh, you have. He's always been very kind to me. So then you, you had this habit of calling DJs. One of those calls eventually leads to a life-changing experience for you, and at some point you're in Arizona working in an Arizona radio station. There's three people who play major roles in my life, and they're all still alive. One of them is Tim Ingstead. He is the brother of Shadow Stevens. I met him when I was driving a cab in Miami because I started calling his afternoon uh, radio show, and I would do all kinds of characters on his show. And finally, we met, and he said to me, you know, if I'm ever in a position to hire you to do a morning show, I'm going to do it. And I thought, yeah, all right, whatever, bullshit. People say that all the time. But he had called me, and he said, I'm program director. I want to hire you to do mornings. I said, oh, great, where are you? You in uh, L.A., New York? No, Tucson, Arizona. Tucson, Arizona? Tucson. So he hired me to come and do mornings in Tucson, Arizona. That's how it started. And uh, it took off after that. I mean, it even led to the Crazy Man. And there's a website today, crazymantv.com, which I think is awesome. But but give us a, a brief story about Crazy Man. Well, Crazy Man was a voice that I did in high school with my friends. Uh, and we would do the voice every time we saw this particular janitor. We kind of came up with a voice that we thought might be his voice. So... The janitor would walk into the cafeteria, and I would be doing the voice. Hello, kids. Hey. Hey, pick up that macaroni and cheese. You spilled it on the floor. So that was the voice. So when I got to Arizona, I got to Tucson, I decided that I really wouldn't be myself, that I do the morning show as the crazy man. So that's the voice that I use. Right. And Crazy Man took off. It was a huge success. And, and you develop parodies. And like I said, people ought to go to the website, crazymantv.com, because you've uploaded video. Uh, there's a parody you do on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Right. And your guest, of all people, happens to be Donald Trump. I mean, who would think that Trump would someday end up being president of the United States? That's a great bit. Right. Gary, talk about that. Right. Johnny D, who's a great, uh, he's the number one Trump impersonator. You should see him now. Number one Trump impersonator in the country. Dead on Donald Trump. Meanwhile, you're opening up stores with Tim and then uh, funky clothing stores, then a pizza joint, and right. then you lose your radio job. and right. Lose uh, everything. It, it, you not only ended up losing everything, you're on unemployment and food stamps. Right. I lost everything. We had, we had a chain of clothing stores, four of them, four or five, and a, uh, a restaurant, and we just were young. We were inexperienced. We were full of piss and vinegar. Nobody could tell us anything. We didn't have any business sense. What we did have was a go-for-broke attitude. We just went for it. If we came up with an idea, whether we thought it was viable or not, we just did it. You know, we were making big, big money. Then we made some mistakes. Then we lost everything. I went bankrupt. I lost the businesses. I lost my house. I mean, I lost everything. I wasn't working. I was on food stamps. You know, from that, I had to, I had to pull myself back up somehow. How did you do it? Well, I, well, I went back into radio because I knew I could always do that and slowly uh, rebuilt my life. 
fast forward to you've got a choice now between TIC and working for a station in San Francisco. And explain why you chose the TIC job. Well, I was working at uh, WBT in Charlotte, which is kind of like the ABC of the South. I was doing mornings there. And things were not working out well there. And I, I had two job offers. One was to come here to do mornings at TIC. And the other one was to do afternoons at K101 in San Francisco. In one weekend, I flew to both locations. And I flew to San Francisco first. And something told me, I just had a gut feeling about it, that it was not a stable situation and the program director, after he gave me the tour and talked to me, brought me back to the office and had a big smile on his face. And he said, so? Like, so? I, I know you're going to take this job. And I said, nah, I don't think so. Well, what do you mean you don't think so? I said, nah, I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm going to do afternoons here. I have a job offer to do uh, mornings in, in Hartford. And he said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you realize more people will hear you in one afternoon here than they will probably in a month there? I said, yeah, but I don't think you're going to be here six months from now. In fact, I don't think the entire staff's going to be here six months from now. And he left. Six months later to the day, he got blown out. The whole staff was let go. So, I don't know, angel on my shoulder, something. Then you come to Hartford and you hit the ground running. Not only did you assess the market, you wanted to know what the competition was. You listened to the competition. You said, well, I can do this, I can do that. But you made it a point, you and John, you made it a point of going anywhere and everywhere, doing anything, riding elephants, sitting on ice blocks, whatever it took to get attention. Talk about that. Well, I knew I had to get out. I knew I had to meet people. I knew I had to make a name for myself. I knew that I had to be at it day and night, and I knew I had to do it better than anybody else that was in the market. And I basically came in with an attitude. I'm going to be, I'm going to, this is war. This is war. Even, even uh, our own TIC AM, they were my enemy. I don't care what you guys are in the same building. I don't give a shit. I, you know. Well, that's what I meant before, by the way, when I said you brought an edge to the market that really didn't exist. And I, and I say that as a compliment, by the way, because this area needed a push. But go ahead. So I got on the air and I said, I'm your yes man. In other words, you have an auction, you have an event, you have a fundraiser, you need a host. You call me and guess what? I say yes. I just said that on the air. And of course, you know, people had events. They always do. So I was out. I was out. I did everything, everything and anything I could to ingratiate myself into the market. You know, I guess it paid off. Well, it did. Now, we go to the second time around here at TIC, and it hasn't been all a bed of roses. Uh, There was that controversy a few years ago about the Latino Festival. Oh, my God. And, uh, well, I'll let you explain it. That was, uh, how do I explain this? You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a content provider on YouTube. I, I constantly put up parodies and bits and funny videos or videos where I think I'm funny. Let me preface that. And I put up this video. I attended the Latino Fest down in Hartford because I'm living there. I live right near there. And I took out my cell phone. I'm making this funny video and where I'm being an asshole and walking around and making comments about everything. And I... To make a long story short, I posted it, and next thing you know, it all blew up. 
I had everyone angry at me. I had the Latin community angry at me. I had the mayor of Hartford angry at me. I had... Um, the Currents running a front-page story every day. Everybody's trying to track me down for a comment. I was called a racist. Once that video uh, got up, and I've been, of course, I, I pulled it down, but it was too late. You know, I always tell everybody, when you post something on the Internet, it's written in ink. You can't take it down. So once they started in with that video, then they went back through all my other videos and they would start nitpicking, oh, well, that's kind of racist, and oh, that's wrong, look what he did here. You know, we're always talking about these celebrities and how they screw up and how uh, the press is after them, they're hounding them. Now I was the subject, so I totally understood what that was like. And um, So where did they get it wrong? I think they got it wrong in my intention. In looking at the video that I put up, I could see where they would uh, misunderstand what that was about. We do uh, Christmas parties for children every year, uh, children from every walk of life. You know, I do this for the kids. That moniker and that label was the last thing I ever thought that I'd have to deal with. When you and Tim were in Arizona and shared a home together, you had a swimming pool and you had neighbors from all backgrounds coming to, to, every, to swim at the pool. Every kid in the neighborhood who wanted to cool off could come and, and hang out and, you know, and enjoy themselves. So I went on a, on a repair. I had to go. I had to... You know, I, and I told management, I said, listen, let me just go on the air and apologize. This has gone too far. Oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that yet. We got we to gotta take you off the air for two weeks. I said, why? Why? Why can't I just apologize? You know, just say I'm sorry. Turned out that I did, you know, I did my apologies. It finally went away and I was able to continue. But for that period of time home, boy, that was... That was really something. Have we become too politically correct as a society? See, nowadays, I have trouble even airing some of my old crank calls. Sometimes we can't even air them. Oh, I can't air that one. Oh, why not? Well, you can't air that one. Maybe we could air this one if we re-edit the crank call, but we can't air that one. See, now you can't, you can't say anything to anybody. You can't intimate anything to anybody. You, you, can't, you can't walk down the hall and say, oh, you look good today. What do you mean I look good? They'll be trotting down to the HR office. Uh, I don't. I don't like uh, Gary telling me that I look good. I feel very uncomfortable with that. <laughs> well, you know, you're a fan of the crooners. You look at some of the old Dean Martin shows today. You couldn't put that on television. You couldn't put it on television. So here we are. Like a like you mentioned, your last show was June 28th. Uh, are you going to sing when you when uh, you leave radio? Are you, are you going to pursue that? Thing? There, was, there was talk like, you were going to do a, what a one man show with singing. When you said, "Are you going to sing?" I instantly thought they're going to put me in an electric chair. <laughs> so you're going to tell all. <laughs> that, that's well, how that gonna, might happen. I don't know. That's how I'm going to sing on my last day. Uh, I don't know. You know, I've I've gone through. Um, the last show in my mind a uh, hundred times. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? What's my last words? What's my last song? Should I play back all the old bits? Should I not play back all the old bits? Here's what I think I'm leaning towards on the last show. I'm leaning towards replacing all the regular music that we play with just music from the year that I started, which is 1981. So all the songs that I play were the, the top hits of that year in 1981. 
that and opening the phones and just let letting people say whatever the hell they want to say. You know, Christine wants to do this whole thing with the bits. Let's do a different theme every day. First day will crank call day. Second day will be parody day. Third day, and you know, and I'm thinking, you know what? Everyone has heard these bits. They've they've heard them over and over again for years. They're not hearing anything new. They have memories of all these crank calls. And plus, you can go online and and, and listen to crank calls. They're all over YouTube. You know, so instead of just, you know, dredging out all the shitty, crappy bits, some of them are funny, some of them are not, and playing that back, let's just let's just have a day where we just reminisce, you know, play the music that was prevalent when I started, open the phones, let anyone who wants to say anything, you know, say it. You're an asshole. I always thought you were an asshole. <laughs> and now I'm telling you. <laughs> Uh, has there been an effort by management to talk you out of this retirement? No. Does that surprise you? Well, they they asked me if I was sure, and I my answer was no. I'm not sure. I, I even now I don't know whether I'm doing the right thing or not. I don't know because I'm I'm walking into an abyss. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. I have no plan. I don't. No know. other radio station has contacted you. No. Isn't it odd? And you know what? Everyone has said, oh, when you go, boy, people, people are going to go cra- crazy and they're really going to. And I, and I always say, no, no, they're not. They're not going to do that. Everyone has their own life. They're all into their own little lives. They'll think about it for a second. And then once I'm out of here, somebody else will be taking my place. And that'll be the new guy or the new lady. So, you know, they'll miss me for a second. I well, mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not disappearing from the face of the earth. I'm still going to be on Facebook. I'm still going to be posting ridiculous videos. I'm still going to be doing my podcast. But uh, you just won't hear me here, that's all. You write in your book, Tugging on the Sleeve of Fame, you cease to be relevant. Who's Gary Craig? Get me Gary Craig. Get me somebody like Gary Craig. Who's Gary Craig? Right. That's the progression. That's the that's the system. Then eventually you go back to that. You go back to who's Gary Craig. I've enjoyed interviewing you. Thanks for asking me to interview you. Thanks for doing it. Did you learn anything? <laughs> I learned a lot. And I urge people to read Tugging on the Sleeve of Fame. It's a great book. I told you it's, it, it helped me during a difficult time. Good luck on your next phase in life. Whatever the and, hell that is. Whatever the hell it is, and I know we'll be seeing you. I'm going to be down in Florida. I'm hiking my pants up to my nipples. <laughs> I'm going to put on a pair of mauve colored shoes, and I just purchased one of those giant wraparound sunglasses. And I'm going to be walking around. Listen, I, I got such gash, you shouldn't even ask. Don't, don't forget the socks and the Depends. Yes, the de- well, it all depends. depends. <laughs> and when, I wonder what that, uh, that Schmidlap Dan Lavallo's doing. <laughs> He's up in the booth with the Hartford Yard Goats. Where's Gary? Where's Gary? Gary, come on up. Come on up. Dan, thanks. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been your effing podcast. Download your podcasts wherever you get podcasts, or you can go to GaryCraig.com. The link is there. Tell a friend about it. That way we could double our audience from one listener to two. 
and then you too, you know who you are.